Hello everybody and welcome to Perspective Season 2, a podcast about the many facets of reality. We are Magdalena and Beatrice and today you're going to listen to Side A of the Moon-themed episodes. If you take a moment to notice this, you realize that more or less all earthly creatures provided with an ability to ambulate have a slight tendency to dance as they move. Dogs chase their own tails, giraffes elegantly stride in undulations, fish rhythmically swim swaying their hips, mosquitoes buzz in whirlpools and waves, and it is a fact that felines walk shaking their booty. Personally speaking, I am convinced that this originates from an instinctive empathy with the planet Earth that, as everybody knows, is a very dynamic corpuscle, or, to employ the more specific terms of the official allocation of astral duties in the solar system, the Earth is to be considered chorus tightrope walker with excellent results in the art of twirling. Now. Try to imagine this poor little green and blue sphere forced to spin and turn incessantly, carrying out extremely dangerous numbers of orbitation, revolution, and double jackknife twist, nervous as hell and focused on not confusing the two axes of rotation around which it needs to carry out these feats of acrobatics, its own and the sun's one, with not even a minute to breathe in between, nor, of course, a day off. It's not hard to understand why, at some point, the Earth from all that frenetic twirling got so overheated, it just couldn't perform anymore. What do you think all that water on the Earth is if not the sweat the Earth sweats from all that athletic activity? So, it was due to this now intolerable overheating that at some point in the history of the solar system, it was decreed that the Earth would be given custody of a brand new little satellite. Yes, even at celestial levels, they will find any possible excuse lest they should reduce the number of hours they exploit their employees' work. Named Moon, this satellite's duty was basically that of giving the Earth a little relief in its endless pirouetting, casting its shadow over part of the globe, and with it, a little refreshment. It becomes now more understandable also why, since it was hired for the purpose of alleviating the weight, in all senses, of all that earthly sweat, the moon has so much influence over tides and more generally all the waters of the earth. That said, since then things on earth have gone on relatively fine from a planetary point of view. Until, on a clear mid-season night, for those who were in the shaded slice of the earth, or in a clear mid-season day for those who were on the lit slice of the earth, while more or less everyone was minding their own business, out of the blue, without a sound, the moon shattered in a million pieces, and the whole earth was sprinkled with a light rain of silver dust. For one moment only, perhaps for the first time in history, all the inhabitants of the earth and the earth itself, were so bewildered they couldn't utter, for one moment, not even one thought. The whole earth was quiet. For that moment of dismayed astonishment, under that moon rain, the whole earth kept silent.
The reactions that followed the unexplainable event were various. Some people weren't worried in the least. After all, the moon being a satellite, it was by definition an optional asset. So we could live perfectly well without it and we might as well dismiss the whole thing. I would underline that the opinion of the representatives of the solar system followed this line of thought, since their main interest was to avoid having to invest in a new satellite for the Earth, considered obviously too expensive. Then there were the scientists, who in their bubbly curiosity had gone wild to find an explanation to the bizarre phenomenon that had occurred. And then, how could we forget them? There were the romantics. The romantics of the Earth, naturally all convinced that nobody would ever understand them because they were the last one of their species, gathered across the globe to express their sorrow at the disappearance of their beloved moon. This was also how they had the joy to realize that there were incredibly many on Earth, and starting a chain of mutual encouragement, after all they were romantics and all had a very big heart, they scattered in demonstrations all over the world, protesting against whatever it was that had caused the disappearance of the moon. The Earth started to be dappled with what were named the Plots of Wishes. Thousands of romantics found each other every night on the open fields of the planet to entrust to each star they could see in the sky the wish that their moon could be healed and brought back to them. The romantics couldn't know it, but the amount and strength of their wishes, that is, the sudden and exponential growth of romantic faith, jammed stellar traffic at never-before-seen levels. The wishes transit system had been neglected for a long time, seeing the manifest lack of demand, and this unexpectedly intense renewal of interest from users engendered such a serious emergency situation that it was necessary to call the competent galactic authorities. In a couple of light days, such a commingling of collaborators of the Galactic Transport Agency was gathered that the problem of the transitability of wishes was solved. Instead, what revealed itself to be a lot more complicated than expected was that once assured that the route between the wishing user and the chosen star could be undertaken in all safety and efficiency, the stars, facing the huge amount of requests for such an unusual wish to come true, were very much perplexed. Make the moon come back? But did you girls receive any notice of the suppression of a satellite lately? Shouldn't they give at least a hundred light years notice before making anything disappear? And also, how is it possible that the moon has vanished like that into thin air? Has she gone anywhere? These were the doubts the poor disoriented stars had to deal with daily, so much so that not knowing what else to do and having to at least try to act upon their duty to make an attempt at making the wishes distributed to them come true, the stars officially requested a stellar inquiry on the origin of the disappearance of the moon, in the hope of consequently being able to proceed and make things right the way they were. In no time, a team of galactic detectives specialized in celestial bodies' behavior was brought together. These were all people with extraterrestrial resumes sent from none other than the Ministry for Galactic Balance, and the stars were so reassured by the trustworthy air the investigation team exuded that they even started sending positive vibrations to Earth concerning the matter. We could argue that it was maybe a little too early to start sending good vibrations to the expectant Earth's romantics, 
But after all, if they were able to create such a powerful link with those Earthlings, you won't find it very surprising to learn that stars are the most romantic thing in the universe. Ergo, they're very easily subject to deluding themselves with their wishful thinking. Ergo, they often send positive vibrations instilling hopes in their Earthlings without having the slightest objective support to their optimism. Therefore, while the romantics of the Earth started feeling unexplainably sure and thrilled that soon the moon would come back to shine on them, the astral investigation team kept carrying out their routine inspections and interrogatories, and everything seemed to confirm the most utter mystery. No trace, total dissolution, not even a goodbye note. Until one day, they found the clue that overturned the investigation. Behind a short curtain that hadn't been discovered before because it was of the same exact color of the sky, the moon had carved a small cavity in which she had placed a cardboard box containing, here or here, a stack of papers. Because, apparently, the moon wrote poems. You can imagine how surprised and touched were the investigation team realizing that the moon, such a small and useless satellite that they clearly hadn't enough money for, the moon hadn't disappeared for any feat of magic. It wasn't destroyed by any intergalactic terrorist. You won't believe it, but the moon, in her poems, had written about love. And the only conclusion the greatest detectives of the galaxy had been hired to find was perhaps the most banal, the earthliest answer ever. On the day the moon had shattered in a million grains of silver rain, very simply, her heart had broken. The stars, once they had learned the outcome of the investigation, had to give up and send the sad news to their earthlings that they could never make their wish come true. The whole earth then started mourning, the romantics felt by some astral affinity that there was nothing else to do anymore, and all the major scientists hadn't reached any satisfactory conclusion. They could not explain how such a phenomenon could have been possible, not to mention how it could be reversed. While the grieving earthly romantics took out their dusty copies of Leopardi and Verlaine, the stars passionately started reading and sharing the poems of the moon. They say that in that period you could often observe a strange celestial phenomenon of luminous movements, as if some sky sparks were bouncing from one star to the other. Well. Those were the movements of the poems the moon had written, that every star of that hemisphere passed on to the next one, drawing a choreography of light streamers in the sky. But who could have been the object of all that love? Who had inflicted that terrible and finally unsustainable suffering to the moon, all those silver tears? Who had the moon fallen so madly in love with to let her heart fall to pieces like that. This remained a mystery. Some asked themselves if perhaps it wouldn't be possible that once this mysterious individual was found, they could fix the moon's heart and therefore have her come back. But all searches were in vain, 
and one by one, the earthlings started surrendering to the idea that there would never be Cheshire cat smiles anymore, nor bubbles of pearly light in the black sky, nor the glow of a faint blue light along the traits of the beloved. But, as you know, some things can take a definitely surprising turn. By chance, one of the moon's poems, written with her elegant and yet uncertain handwriting, fell from the hands of a young little star who was reading it. Those words had touched her so intimately and moved her so strongly that the tears she wasn't able to contain smudged the whole text, and in an attempt to wipe the tears away from the precious paper and compose herself, the little star released her hold and the earth's gravity snatched the poem from her. And slowly, softly, the page delicately floated in denser and denser layers of atmosphere until it glided lightly under the transparent sheet of the sea's surface off the coast of a little island. It wasn't dawn yet when the moon's poem eased itself down on the water. The beach, not far away, started stretching and calling to itself its sea blanket before letting the tide reveal it completely to the rising sun. The same words the little star had been so moved by were now fading in the salt, when a human hand picked up what was left of them and spread the moon page out on the wooden side of a boat. It wasn't the first time the flower fisher had found messages in bottles during his morning routine of water plowing. Once it was a call for help written in a foreign language, later deciphered by the lady in Apple Tree Lane, who was not only a poet but also a philologist. Another time he had found a shred of goodbye letter that had clearly been torn apart. A very sad thing the flower fisher had thought. Yet another time the message in the bottle had come from the other side of the sea, where two children must have had a blast writing death threats to strangers signing themselves Fred Harpoon Nose and Diego with the Crippled Parrot. The flower fisher always kept a corner of boat free to lean against when he wanted to take some notes or scribble some sketches of his plants, for his ambitious project of compiling the great illustrated encyclopedia of marine flora, the most complete ever written, or play solitaire or spreading out in the sun the messages he might find at sea. His wife was amazed when she saw that it was actually possible for a square centimeter of that lifeboat's surface not to be taken up by all those weeds. The whole boat was in fact otherwise filled with earth, arable earth, which formed a wet and flowery layer upon which plants of all origin and species were crammed and thrived. They were all experiments for the great illustrated encyclopedia of marine flora because, as the flower fisher rightfully claimed, if by marine flora we mean all plant life that is able to live literally in the sea, in order to classify which earthly plants could effectively be able to live on salty water, one would have to experiment with all known varieties of plant and find an empirical proof of how each and every one would fare in such conditions until a complete overview would be achieved. 
In that period, the flower fisher was focusing on wildflowers and garden flowers, or the wild ones and the domesticated ones, as his wife liked to call them. And the big Papaver alpinum subspecies wonderland of a carrot orange color, or lobster, or grapefruit, or whatever you want it to be. Have you ever noticed that when associating a color to an object that would illustrate it, we often tend to use very personal terms of comparison? For example, when I think of the color orange, I am immediately reminded of a fleece pajama I have that is of a particularly bright hue. It's a pity that we can't exchange stories when we exchange images. If that were the case, I could have written pajama orange, and nobody would have been left wondering what I was referring to, nor how expressive I wanted to be. End of my speech on the limits of verbal communicability. So, this Papaver alpinum subspecies wonderland of a carrot orange color cast its shadow on the soaked moon's poem. The flower fisher tried to extrapolate some sort of meaning from the lines he could still see on the paper, but the few words he could distinguish were certainly written in a language he didn't know. He thought he would pay a visit to the lady in Apple Tree Lane to ask her once again for her help in deciphering, if not the content, at least the origin of that message, and to chat a little on the good old days. It was morning by now in the sea village, and the wife of the flower fisher had just sat at her working table to complete her last opus. She was, in fact, the most skilled ceramist of the area, if not of the whole country, as her townspeople claimed, if not of the whole world, as her husband claimed. She worked on her vases of the thinnest ceramic with loving care, and she decorated all of them, none excepted, painting either small fish or birds in flight with a delicate hand and a gentle trait. Apart from the beauty of her vases, which came from her matchless technique and the care they were visibly created with, what made her vases even more extraordinary was the unexplainable shade of green-blue that the wife of the flower fisher used for her fish's scales or her bird's feathers. When they asked her how she was able to recreate for every single vase the perfect combination of pigments of such an extraordinary color, she normally blushed and replied that she modeled it on the color of her own eyes. And it was a spell-binding color, so bright, so deep, so seductive and yet almost alarming, that in the village they believed she had unlocked the secret of the color of the sea. That night, when the flower fisher came back from his day of experiments, the ceramist with the sea eyes was putting a pair of bruschette in the oven. In the summer, they loved to have dinner on the terrace by candlelight, and before she died so unexpectedly in the moonlight. Yes, because the flower fisher and the ceramist with the sea eyes had concluded their own theory on the disappearance of the moon, and they had told themselves that she must have died. Of old age, probably. Oh, but how much dimmer were those dinners on the terrace now. How much dimmer were the roses' colors at night, the perfume of the lavender over the cliffs, the voice of Mama Nightingale singing goodnight to her little ones. Since the moon had died, also between them something had broken, as if the sea that kept their twin islands united had dried out. 
They had met in a church many years before. Not that they were particularly committed to their local religion, but both of them loved the scent you can breathe in churches, of lilies and a silence so rarefied it makes your thoughts and memories reverberate. Both loved the feeling of safety and yet of lightness you find in churches, surrounded by stone both strong and slender, dappled by rays of color from the stained glass windows. Both loved the feeling you get, however deceptive it might be, that in a place like that you're never alone, that a place like that could hold the necessary peace to let kindness flow freely from each and every human heart. Clearly, they couldn't actually have met thanks to this common habit, despite the uncountable number of times they had been seated a couple of benches away from each other. No, of course not. They were too young, and they let themselves be submerged too entirely by the silence to notice anything outside of it. In those moments, they belonged to something much too high, much too other. There was no future nor past. It was only eternity that time that abstracts itself from time itself and is beyond it. Sometimes this kind of beauty inside churches was able to bring some people to tears, people who wept for the liberating realization that it was possible, that it was accessible to all, that eternity was for free. When our two heroes met for real, it was a fall afternoon. The flower fisher, still too young to know he would become that, ruinously tripped on the purse of the ceramist with the sea eyes, who instead had already intuited her inclinations, smacking his face on the ground and breaking his two front teeth. She insisted on accompanying him to the hospital, and the young flower fisher realized he had tripped in the best thing of his life. The moon had always been both a mother and a tyrant to their story, the flower fisher had to come back in the evenings before the moon had reached a precise height established with rigor depending on the seasons. In the morning, he couldn't leave before the moon had set completely. The moon had kept them apart and brought them back together again with the cruel and yet longed-for inevitability of time. She had decided of their life together and had dictated the terms of their absences. And now that she wasn't there anymore to order those absences, all those hours of loneliness had lost their legitimacy. Since the moon had died, something inside them has started to upset them. Something that urged them to rebel against those separations that made so little sense now. And now that there was no tyrant to conspire against, they had started, perhaps unknowingly to themselves also, to blame each other of wanting to perpetuate a useless captivity, of not knowing how to listen, of not wanting to let the other's love feed on a little more oxygen, of not loving enough. They were such dissimilar creatures, the ceramist with the sea eyes and the flower fisher. She, always so steadfast, so warm, that she had never found the will to leave that small village because she couldn't find it in her to break any roots, ever. And yet, she hosted inside herself so many insecurities, so much irrepressible restlessness and imagination, so much desire for discovery and adventure, 
She loved of a deep love all migrating creatures, all non-earthly creatures, her birds, her fish. And he, instead, he couldn't stay put a moment. He had never been able to settle and had traveled so much and so far. He loved going out in the open sea with the sun in his eyes and the strength not to belong anywhere. And yet, he was nonetheless fascinated by all that grows, all that feeds on dry land. His plants he took care of so lovingly, as if he had understood that all that grows roots will always be more solid, but also more vulnerable than what grows in the air or in the water. Once, a globe-trotting artisan had stopped on their little island and had asked for hospitality in exchange for his creations. After three days spent in their snow-white house, he had made for them inside two bottles, a ship for the flower fisher and the lighthouse for the ceramist with the sea eyes. Was it a coincidence that the globe-trotting artisan used to sign his works engraving a half-moon on the glass? When that night the flower fisher came back home and kissed the ceramist with the sea eyes, he took the mysterious relic out of his pouch. And what a surprise that was! The paper glowed! The characters on the page had also changed, as if they had been written with a sky-color ink. The flower fisher was sure the words were sky-blue when he found the paper that morning. How was it possible that now they were night-blue? That was a very special night, spent imagining where this clearly enchanted object could come from, how thrilling it was to be visited by some magic every now and then, make up some stories. It was decided that until the following Sunday, the magic page would have to stay in the snow-white house, and once the working week would end, the ceramist with the sea eyes and the flower fisher would have gone to visit the lady in Apple Tree Lane to ask for her help. For the following days, therefore, the moon's poem stayed safe on the palm of the sitter table, next to the pear pies, the boxes of paintbrushes, the photo albums, and the finished chapters of the great illustrative encyclopedia of Marie Flora. As everybody knows, poems, like all living things, frail or strong that they be, die if they are deprived of tenderness. During those few days while the moon's poem received the ceramist with the sea eyes and the flower fisher's attentions, without them even realizing it, they had granted it a tenderness it had never known before. Not even the hand of its creator, who had written those stacks of papers with her heart broken, had known how to love that poem so tenderly. That gratuitous kindness, that caring, held the seed of a very precious something called hope. And so, in a relatively short time, the faded traits, the sad verses, the sky-color ink, the cloud paper, the whole poem seemed to be revived back to life. Come Sunday, the two guardians of the moon's page were so in awe at that luminous enchantment that they didn't waste any time. They crumbled some leaves of the tea the lady in Apple Tree Lane found so prodigious, and they started on their way up the hill. It was one of those golden mornings that paint honey and copper waves and animals' furs and humans' hair. 
One of those mornings when the skin of the world glows, when all the locks in the most secret eyes come open. The flower fisher thought that that morning, the ceramist with the sea eyes seemed to contain all the Pacific Ocean in her gaze. The lady in Apple Tree Lane was an old friend of our two heroes, an old lady with white hair, white clothes, white thoughts. Yes, also the cat was white. Being a poet and a philologist, she had lots of interesting friends whose visits she organized by theme. On Mondays, they talked about theater, on Tuesdays of poetry, on Wednesdays of prose, on Thursdays of the visual arts, on Fridays of music, on Saturdays of dance, and on Sundays, she would rest. These gatherings were open for everybody to participate and share in, but more than once the ceramist with the sea eyes had been invited on a Thursday night as an eminent representative of the local art scene. And all those people of all ages and origins were so crazy, so full of stories to share, so humble and so vividly fascinated by every aspect of human expression that both the flower fisher and the ceramist with the sea eyes always had loads of fun each time they had been able to go. When they got at the end of Apple Tree Lane, the white cat said a smiling hello to them and led them into the house of the white lady. Once comfortably seated, holding their teacups decorated with flowers, white, of course, hot with that tea that the white lady loved so much and that only her dear flower fisher could find for her, they got to work. The whole morning they paged through dictionaries full of mysterious characters, coming from who knows how far, full of the customs and stories of peoples who knows how different from them. Then they started studying the materials, searching the composition of such a special kind of paper that never before seen ink. But they couldn't reach any conclusion, if not that that magic page came from a place, perhaps a time, too remote to retrace its origin. So there was really no hope left anymore. And wishing to cheer everybody up, the white lady invited her friends to join her for lunch, which she was planning to have with her nephew, who was going to arrive soon from the city with some very special supplies. What a pleasure was to see each other again after so long. The young nephew of the white lady was studying to become a pharmacist, and since he was a child, when he used to come and spend his summers with his aunt in the little sea village, he had always greatly admired Flower Fisher. He was the one who had been able to notice and insisted on cultivating the child's early inclination towards observing the natural world, and it had been thanks to him if the pharmacist-to-be had become passionate about studying plants so early. Between one delicious pumpkin and potato dumpling and the other, as our friends were catching up, the young pharmacist-to-be became curious about the story of the mysterious page and of the researches his friends made in vain in the morning. You need to know that the young pharmacist-to-be, perhaps thanks to those drops of poetry he had in the blood he shared with such a special aunt, fit the definition of romantic perfectly. And yes, he was among those who had deplored the disappearance of the moon, among those who had taken part in the plots of wishes, among those who knew that living on an earth without a moon wasn't going to be just like living on a planet without a satellite. 
He had studied with so much ardor the influence of the moon on vegetable creatures. He had been so fascinated by the nature the power the moon had on the sap plants, such a certain and yet such a magical science. And only recently something had happened to him, something that had made him wonder if maybe what flows inside humans isn't blood but sap, a kind of sap that instead of making leaves grow green, makes eyes and smiles grow bright, a kind of sap on which the moon had a lot more power than one would think. Perhaps it's not surprising that the first thing the young pharmacist-to-be said after seeing the glowing magic page was, it looks like a moon leaf. At which everybody, the flower fisher, the ceramist with the sea eyes, the white lady, and even the white cat, exchanged a look of surprise and discovery. They couldn't be sure of it, but yes, how could they not have thought about it before? That paper, those words, had to, couldn't be, but a lunar enchantment. It had taken so little to understand. All they had to do was to show those words to a young and longing and overflowing heart for the meaning to become clear. Why was it now that the pharmacist-to-be was blushing so suddenly in such a tender way? Was there anyone, I wonder, who in that moment was made to be overjoyed by that discovery? Did anyone, anywhere, miss a heartbeat in that moment, overwhelmed by the emotion of seeing the existence of a beloved creature recognized and acknowledged? Was there anyone, somewhere, filled more than anyone in the whole universe of an unfathomable joy for this little step closer to finding the moon again? Somebody who just couldn't refrain themselves from hoping. The young pharmacist-to-be instinctively suggested that the only way to understand the meaning of the mysterious inscriptions on the moon leaf was to bring it to a plot of wishes and hope that the stars would find an answer. That same night, he left for the closest plot of wishes with some leftovers of his aunt's pumpkin and potato dumplings and a slice of pear pie from the two of the Snow White house. The night fell slowly on that part of the world, as if she didn't want anyone to notice her. The lady in Apple Tree Lane that night allowed herself to rest from all her visits, and while she was sipping her prodigious tea and petting her white cat, she looked up at the constellations and thought over what she had discovered that day. She thought she could have written a poem about it, about how much magic there is in a human heart, and how much magic you need to penetrate the meaning of the world. Or to invent it, was there any difference after all? What mattered was believing. The flower fisher that night went down in his garden number 42. He was never really able to get rid of the plants he experimented with. Having to make always more room for new varieties, he always transplanted on dry land the plants that survived in the boat garden unfolding the snow-white house of gardens and greenhouses, and picked a bunch of Ipomea alba, a flower that only blooms at night, opening in a white blossom with five petals, predictably also called moonflower. That night, while they were having dinner on the terrace with a simple seafood soup, the flower fisher and the ceramist with the sea eyes talked and talked of what had happened that day. 
There were so many things they couldn't explain, so many things they didn't agree on. Could they really be sure the intuition of the pharmacist-to-be was plausible? Wouldn't it have been better to give the document to somebody who had the means to study it more thoroughly? But beyond the mystery, the theories, the surreal, what the flower fisher and the ceramist with the sea eyes agreed on was that the young pharmacist-to-be that day had reminded them of something they had neglected for too long. They remembered when he was only a boy and he used to come to spend his afternoons in the boat garden, and in the evenings he would come to the house for a fruit juice and a slice of pear pie, all covered in salt and enthusiasm, telling them about the discoveries he had made that day. With his heart still open to magic, he had reminded them that love didn't need any light or darkness to survive, but only itself. It didn't matter if the moon wasn't there anymore. It didn't matter if the sea between their two twin islands dried out. The stars were still there to guide the seafarers. The soft hearts of this world were much more numerous than one would think, and countless metaphors could still be created. That night, the lady in Apple Tree Lane decided not to write that poem. She stroked her white cat once more, took her white stick, let her white hair hang down, lay down on her bed, and decided that some revelations to be appropriated fully need to be let free to come back every now and then, in a cycle. The same way the moon was allowed to become full only once in a while when she was still there. Under the same stars, a little farther away, the young pharmacist-to-be, together with a very special person for him, were lying down on a fallow field, after they had both wished upon two little shimmering stars that the meaning of the moon's message be revealed to them. Although they were feeling perfectly isolated from the rest of the universe, since they were lying on a plot of wishes, they were actually surrounded by hundreds of other romantics, who also hadn't lost all hope yet. And not far from them, sitting the one in front of the other, there were a boy and a girl, clearly engaged in a very serious conversation. The young pharmacist-to-be didn't like to pry into other people's lives, but for some reason something told him to pay particular attention to those two. He didn't know if he was perceiving a danger or an illumination. Nevertheless, he and his very special person, who was a young doctor-to-be, imperceptibly, slowly sat closer to the couple. And it was the doctor-to-be who had a deep knowledge of geology. The pharmacist-to-be always asked himself with a mixture of pride and tender exasperation if there wasn't anything that the doctor-to-be didn't know, to notice that the girl was wearing a pair of earrings with two bright moonstones that glowed in the golden light of their torches and the blue light of the stars. But before they could say anything else, a pitiless shadow was cast on the girl's face, suddenly hardened in a soundless shriek of pain. Nobody had touched her to hurt her physically, the pharmacist and the doctor-to-be had seen everything. And yet, rivers of tears started flowing on the girl's cheeks, lit up by the burning light of the torches. The pharmacist and the doctor-to-be sat up, alarmed, meaning to offer their help, but instead they just stood there, realizing that they were witnessing the ultimate defeat. 
the immense, frightening deepness of the crack breaking under their eyes in the heart of that girl could not be helped in any way. Suddenly, the earrings the girl was wearing, the two moonstones, without the slightest crackling sound and the startled, afflicted silence of those present, dissolved into a silver dust that rained like fairy snow on the hair and the hands of the girl. After the boy had left that night under the stars, the girl and our two lovers talked about flower fishers and ceramists with the sea eyes and white ladies and moon leaves. They kept each other company and were able to give each other some comfort. And they realized that night that the moon would never come back. That the value of feelings rests in the fact that they are reciprocated. And that hope can be a cage as well as a source of joy. No, had she died of old age, or had she been defeated by her broken heart, the moon would never come back. But the stars were still there to guide the seafarers. Love still didn't need anything but itself. The soft hearts of this world were much more numerous than one would think, and countless metaphors could still be created. You just listened to Side A of the Moon-themed episodes on Perspective Podcast. Our theme music and the background music of this episode are by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. To contact us, write us an email at ourperspective.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook slash ourperspective.podcast or you can follow us on Tumblr where you can read the transcript of the episode. It's perspectivepodcast.tumblr.com. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for Side B of the Moon-themed episodes.